Um, here's what I want to do. We, Todd started us last week. He did a fantastic job opening up the letter that John wrote to believers uh, towards the end of the first century. First John is the letter. That's where we're going to be. I'm going to pick up where he left off last week, beginning in verse 5, and um, I'm going to read to really the end of chapter 1, but I'm going to read two verses into chapter 2 because I, I want you, we need to be able to see um, some bookends here, and I don't want you to miss it. But um, essentially, you know, John, he's an old man by now. He's the last of the surviving apostles, and he's near the end of his life. And so it's, it's really, he's an old man writing into a new world. He's, he's the last of the first generation believers, and he's, he's passing on um, this, this, this knowledge, this concern. He, he's concerned for these believers, and, he, and he's making an appeal to them to protect what it is that they believe about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what, what the gospel offers us in our life. And so, um, that, that's the letter, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a, the letter's all over the place. It's not an easy one to, uh, uh, to outline. He, he um, feels like he's rambling, but he's not. He's, he, he has things that he's writing passionately about to these younger believers. And so, that's where we'll pick up this morning. I'm going to start in verse 5, and I'm going to read to chapter 2, verse 2. And this is, this is what it says this morning. This is the message that we have heard from him, meaning... Jesus is who he's talking about. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but, for, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you would you'd, you'd take your word and then, Father, by your spirit, would you, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our minds so that we can understand it and that, Father, you would draw us to your son, Jesus. And, Father, you'd change us this morning. You'd You'd continue that transformation in our lives this morning. And so, Father, I, I ask that, that, that I could get out of the way with my words and that as we 
hear and see your words more clearly. Father, you would do what only you can do in our lives. And we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, if you're here with us or if you're online, I mean, it, it doesn't take very long as you're reading into this passage to realize what, what John's talking about. And he's, he's talking about actually the, the second least desirable thing anybody ever wants to hear about when they show up at church. He's talking about sin. If you want to know what the first is, it's money, right? You'd rather hear about sin than money, and don't worry, no money this morning. But it is sin, and sin is this issue, and in fact, what we discover is sin is the biggest problem that we have. It's the problem that the Bible comes to us and says, hey, listen, you have a problem, and there's not a thing you can do about it. It's a problem that you can't solve. But the Bible also comes in the form of the gospel and says, listen, but but there is a solution. It's just a solution you could have never come to all by yourself. You have a problem that's greater than you can solve, and the reality is it's a problem greater than you even really know. But there's a solution to that problem, and though you can't find it, that solution can find you. And so John's writing to these believers because there have been some folks that have crept into the church. Um, They're the earliest uh, of what would later become the Gnostics. And the Gnostics have come along, and they've redefined the problem and offered their own solution. And it's a solution that doesn't depend upon God becoming man and living amongst us. That's why John starts at the very beginning and argues, hey, listen, you want to know who Jesus is? Jesus is the Son of God from the very beginning. And you know what? He came into time and into space and, 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 and lived with us and walked with us. You know what? We even touched him. The eternal life became flesh. We touched eternal life. We had lunch with eternal life. And that's our only hope, is that God loved us so much that he came out of eternity, stepped into history, and would have lunch with us so that we could know who God is. And that the problem of sin that we can do nothing about could be satisfied in a way we would have never dreamt possible. And that's what John's writing about. And he starts in the in in the in in the place he's look, I'm gonna sum everything up for you. Everything that that Jesus taught us, his disciples, the ones who we walked with him for three years, everything he taught us, I can sum up in a handful of words, and it's this he says in verse five. This is the message. This is the gospel message. You could read it that way. That's how he means it. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Which brings to the surface the problem that we cannot solve. See, Christianity at the the same time is both the best news in the world, and it is the worst news in the world. It brings to surface the, the biggest problem that we will ever encounter. 
And also what it does is it freely offers the only satisfying answer. See, what John knows is that when he says he is light, that light didn't just shine when Jesus was here. That light is shining now. The historical distance from the time that Jesus lived means nothing because he's present today. He is light. He is out in the light. We can go to him. We can go there. We can move our lives from darkness into the light. And the implications of the very simple statement are endless. Jesus didn't come. He, this is how he started. He didn't come to tell us how wonderful we are. He came to tell us how beautiful God is. He didn't start with us. He starts with God. That's the only place to start. And here's where the problem comes, though. John, he loves this image of light. The declaration, God is light, is this penetrating description of, of, the, of the being and the nature of God. It means he's absolute in his glory. Unbending, perfect, abiding, endless truth. And he's holy, holy beyond which we are able to even bear. And in the holiness of God, the divine perfection, his blazing glory, and the fact that it exposes us, God reveals himself, his beauty, his perfection, his glory, and in his light, it leaves us nowhere to hide. His light clearly reveals who we are. And our instinct is to run away from it and to hide and, 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 and to be afraid of it. In fact, John, he's gonna re, he records in his gospel, John chapter 3, he says, this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. But the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. I mean, they didn't want to come to the light because they wanted to hide from it. They were looking for the shadows to hide in. And it brings us to this reality this morning that even if you're a believer, especially if you're a believer, but I would say that if you are a believer this morning, you're far more aware of the problem of sin than if you weren't. We've all done bad things. We have all sinned. Well, we've all done things that we've tried to keep hidden in the shadows of denial. It, it, and at the very human impulse it is for us to with, withdraw this fear of being known. I mean, we're still like Adam and Eve hiding amongst the trees in the garden where Adam says in Genesis 3, he says, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. He's speaking to God. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's never changed for us. Later on, the Bible records Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6, which is interesting because Isaiah's already been preaching for five chapters. He's already been telling his countrymen and, and fellow Israelites, hey, listen, 
you're, you're sinful, you're living out of the, outside of how God intended for you to live. We're the people of God, we're the nation of God, we're to shine the light of God into the world, and we are nothing but darkness. He's already been preaching that to his people. But then in Isaiah 6, he records in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Essentially what he's saying is, I know God. I've, I've talked to him in prayer. I've, I've spoken about him to the people. I've, I've been passionate for the things he's passionate about. Here's what he's saying. I caught a glimpse of him like I'd never, like I never imagined I would. The train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two eyes. He covered his face and with uh, two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah goes on, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is saying, I came into the light, and I was undone. And he knew that he was in trouble. And then what happens is God cleanses him. He takes away his guilt and atones for his sin, which, which brings me to, okay, if John's saying, hey, listen, believer, brother and sister in Christ, Come into this light. God is light, and Him is no darkness at all. Come into the light. Our question is, well, how do we do that? If God has a holiness that's, that's a, it's a eternal blazing fire, how can we survive? Well, th that's why I read to, to John 2, 1 John 2, verse 2, because while he tells us God is light, which on the one hand is a big problem for us, he offers us, he tells us what the solution is in John 2 verse 2. Look at it again with me. He, he's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, so what he's saying is, listen, God is light. It's, it's a holiness. It's a blazing, white, hot glory. Holiness of God to which no man can survive when he stands in the midst of. But Jesus has come into the world with a grace so radical and so foreign from anything that we've ever known. And he says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, which means this. Your problem was sin. So Jesus stepped out of eternity into history, took on flesh, and you know what he did? He took your sin. Your sin. 
he took to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He came and took your sin onto himself. He became your sin. And he died for it. He died with it. He paid for your sin. Your sin was transferred to him. Every sin, all of it, every bit, every past sin, the sin that's sitting here gnawing at you this morning, and every sin in your future, it went to him. That's what propitiation means. It also means this is like a two-sided coin. It means he took all of your sin. He, he was sacrificed for your sin. It also means that he, that he took onto himself. He became the object of the wrath of God. The only right response from a holy, glorious, blazing, white, hot, perfect, beautiful God towards the ugliness and stain and wickedness of sin is wrath, the infinite wrath of God. And when Jesus is nailed to the cross, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He becomes the object of all of God's wrath for your sin. You know, I talk about it like there's there's three worldwide judgments in the Bible. The first one is in Genesis 6 through 9, the flood. God comes, he sees the wickedness. I wish that had never created man. At least that's, that's how it was interpreted by man. And God judges the world and saves one family. The third of the worldwide judgments comes at the very end when all the dead are raised. All the dead, the good and the bad and the ugly. And they're raised, and they'll stand before God, and He will judge humanity. For those whose names aren't found in the Lamb's book of life, for those who have not trusted Jesus, for those who have not counted on Jesus for their salvation, they will suffer the eternal wrath of God. But the worldwide judgment that takes place in the middle of history happens on the cross as Jesus is there and bears the wrath of God for the sins of the world. The question is, which judgment will you count as your own? The judgment Jesus endured on your behalf? Or will you face your own judgment? See, John's going to say later in 1 John chapter 4, he's going to say, listen, God is love. You can ask any fifth grader in America probably. Say, God is, and ask him to finish the sentence. Well, they can finish John's verse. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. But that's not where he starts. He starts with God is light. And, and, he, and he starts there because, listen, I don't think we can understand the love of God unless you understand the grace of God, which means you've been given what you don't deserve. Nobody earns Grace, you don't earn anything with God. But you can't understand the grace of God until you come to terms with the mercy of God. And that is that not only have you received what you didn't deserve, you, you didn't receive what you, what you do deserve. 
mercy is that, is that what you deserved, he poured out on his son. But see, you really can't understand his mercy until you understand that he's a God of infinite wrath. But you won't understand that until you understand that he's a God of infinite wrath because he's a God of infinite, uncompromising, unwavering glory and holiness. His mercy for the undeserving that's what we're talking about. That's Christianity. And you know what the reality is? That's what makes it hard to accept. It makes it hard to believe, hard to hang on to. I mean, we have this instability, this insecurity in our lives. We deeply believe is that God can't stomach the real me, the behind-the-scenes me, the hiding-in-the-shadows, unrehabilitated me. And our thoughts insist that this almighty God, this holy God, must despise me. And he's only right to do so. Just look at us. And that's what we think, and that's the monologue in our minds. And the gospel comes along, and it says something entirely different. The gospel comes and says, no, he loves you. He forgives you. He justifies you. He adopted you. He rejoices over you. And he will never stop rejoicing over you forever. And so what was a problem for us? This holiness of God, this divine perfection, and, and the light of God that exposes us. So when you see God for who he is, you, it's real clear who you are. God reveals himself in his beauty and his perfection, leaves us nowhere to hide. But because of Jesus, that problem is now becomes this invitation. We, we realize that because of Jesus, now the, the light, God is light to come into that light. It's the safest place in all of the world that we could ever be. He took all our sin. He clothed us in his righteousness. We have nothing to fear from God. Because of Jesus, He's bringing us to the Father. We can now come to Him with zero caution. We can come to Him with fearless joy. God's never going to betray us. He's made the way for us. Well, that's, the, that's what's at issue. That when John says God is light and that Jesus is the propitiation... This is how, he, this is how he's accounting for us to be able to be reconciled with God and that the, that the light of God, to walk in the light, that's the safest place a believer would ever be. But you can't really understand and embrace the solution until you come to a place where you're honest about the problem. See, I think a lot of people, we, we struggle being honest about the problem. In, in fact, these Gnostics, they were... They were struggling. In fact, what they did was they redefined the problem. And then they offered their own solution. And, and so they, they, they make claims. You can see it in, in verse 6. Here's a claim. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness. That's what they were saying. Oh, no, no, no. We know God. We have fellowship with him. I mean, we walk in the darkness. But I mean, 
That's not the problem. Or he'll say in verse 8, if you say you don't have sin, he say, well, sin's not the problem. It, or, or at least it's not a very big problem. I mean, we don't, I mean, what you, you call sin, I, I don't call sin. You know, I mean, potato, potato. We, we can agree to disagree. So, so they're, what, what they're doing is they claimed, you know, listen, sin it, that doesn't exist in our nature. It doesn't, it's not active in our behavior. It, it doesn't interfere with our fellowship with God. In other words, here's what they were saying, is that I can become a Christian and I don't have to change. That I can say I love Jesus and stay the same as I have always been. That sin's no big deal and nobody, nobody should have a problem with that. And John says, wait a minute, you missed the whole thing. You've missed what Christianity is all about. Christians don't hide in the dark, we come into the light. That's what we were saved for. See, here's the reality. That's the beginning of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, in its formal essence, faded away, but, but the heart of Gnosticism never really has faded away. I mean, it gets repackaged in every generation across the world. Here we would call it Bible Belt Christianity. The idea that, listen, accepting Jesus simply means I'm just not going to go to hell anymore. And I can get on living my life any way that I want to, and I have this bonus of, of sort of God's, you know, magical dust that He's poured, you know, flickered over my life. My job's to sin and his job's to forgive me and everything's good. Apostle John says, no, listen, if we say we have fellowship, we walk in darkness, we don't practice the truth. It's a heresy and it's not a theoretical heresy. It's a practical one. It's how we walk. It's how we live. See, there are two ways to minimize the greatness of the problem we have. You can either bring God down or you can lift man up or you can do one of the both, or, you know, combination of both. You can minimize the holiness of God, or you can minimize the sinfulness of man, or some combination of both. And so John's going to address, apart from the Gnostics, apart from the one saying that the power of God has no power in your life, and hey, listen, where to live as a believer is to live in the light. How have those who have been reconciled to God for eternity? How are those of us who have been saved? How do we relate to God on a day-to-day -day basis? How do we have fellowship with Him? How do we, as believers who've been saved, who still sin? I mean, some of you have, have talked yourself into, oh, well, my really worst sins are the ones um, from before I got saved. You know, and some of you that have been a believer since you were six, you know, um, you, you know, your worst sins were when you were four, when you were in a gang and had that drug problem. You know, here's the reality. For most believers, I think the most heinous of their sins often comes come after the their salvation. How do we account for living in fellowship with a holy God who has saved us? 
when we still struggle with sin in the every day? How do, how do we, uh, with our ongoing sinfulness after we're saved, have fellowship with God? Well, here's what he's going to say. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> after he's already addressed these people who say they walk in the light and have fellowship, or they walk in the darkness and have fellowship with God, he says, no, 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 listen. Here's, here's the corrective in verse 7. You notice it's the if, but if. If, in verse 6, but if, verse 7. If, verse 8, but if, verse 9. If, verse 10, but if, chapter 2, verse 1. But if we walk in the light, since we don't have to sprint, we don't have to run, but we do have to walk. It's one step at a time. We have to get up, we have to walk. It's not passive. We can't wait for anybody else to do it for us. What is walking in the light? It's not a sinless life, but it is where we find the cleansing from sin. He means that while we're walking in the light, the blood of Jesus is cleansing us from sins. We're talking about an honest relationship with Jesus and with one another so that we're free to grow. As he's in the light, see, see, we experience God by stepping out into the light where he is, by being honest about who we are, by naming our sin, by not trying to hide it, by not trying to deny it. God's not hard to find. He's not avoiding us. He's standing right where he said he would be, waiting for us with open arms. And the way into his open arms is simple. It's just dropping your guard. It's not making any more excuses. It's not trying to rationalize or redefine or just to step in and go, you know what? This is who I am. But if we walk in the light, sees in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, the walls in our life come down in, in ways that are appropriate. You see, that's what actually, that's what Winford was actually inviting you to tonight. I mean, she invited you to come and have, you know, barbecue and, and, and brownies. But, but the reality is what he was asking you to is come be in fellowship with them. And you know how that works. You come and it's sort of awkward and everybody's around the table and you're eating and then finally, you know, Winford will say something like, boy, last week was really hard for me or whatever. Man, Tuesday afternoon, I found myself so distracted. I was so frustrated, or I was so filled with anger. Or my, my eyes were wandering, or and the words that were coming out of my mouth, I was just really struggling with the, the sin and the, and the selfishness of my life. And then you know what happens around the table? You would think, oh no, it just got awkward. No, it doesn't. You know what happens? It gets really relaxed. Because then somebody else goes, oh, you know what? You too? It's the way I feel. We find we have things in common. We never even knew. We, do, we wouldn't even talk about it. Here we have them in common. You know, the world's not like that. The world doesn't promote that. The world is harsh and it's judgmental. But Jesus breaks that cycle at the cross. He took our real guilt upon himself. He gave back to us nothing but mercy. So now we can walk together at the foot of the cross, and there's mercy and grace and forgiveness and love for one another, and it flows from this 
beautiful power. Well, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now we discover not only real fellowship, but real cleansing. The basis of our reconciliation to God, our salvation, is also the confidence we have in our day-to-day relationship with God. It doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it means you can have real and significant healing in this life. The really bad sin that weighs on you, that the one you most regret, you know, haunts you, you know, grieves you. You know which one I'm talking about. That's the very sin Jesus shed his blood to wash away. That sin is where Jesus loves you the most tenderly. John says, Come into the light. Then you take another step and another step and you confess your sin and realize Jesus bore the sin that's so hard for you to bear and you don't have to bear it any longer. You confess it. And so now it doesn't, it doesn't define you anymore. It's not your identity. It doesn't control your future. The sin is now redefined by the cleansing blood of Jesus. That's what John wants for you. And then he instructs us on how to do it. If we confess our sins, verse 9, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the first thing, our instinct is not to confess. Our instinct is to employ a whole bunch of strategies when sin is confronted in our life. We try to rationalize. That's one of the first things we do. We tell ourselves, look, it wasn't, it wasn't, Technically, I mean, really, it wasn't that wrong. And we compare ourselves to others, you know, it wasn't bad as such and such or so and so. The other thing we do is we try to ignore it. We, you know, we don't let things get quiet enough, long enough. We try to push it to the, to the side. We turn on others. We, we criticize. We gossip. We try to shift attention. We, we, we try to shift blame. Here's one. We, we, we come to God not in confession, but we come to God with a bunch of vows, all the things we're going to do, right? Oh, God, I, I, will, I, will, I will never, never again. And we conjure up that resolve. We try to pay it away with a penance or a sacrifice. All of those strategies will never relieve the problem we have. One writer says it this way, see, so much of your anger is really guilt. So much of your shame is really guilt. So much of your drive is really guilt. So much of your shyness is really guilt. So much of your bitterness, so much of your cynicism, so much of what drives you is really your way of dealing with guilt. How are you going to deal with it? And none of these strategies work because none of them can take sin away. None of them can cover over it. Only confession. Believing that if we confess, God's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. I'm going to end here. Psalm 32. It's, um, 
Paul, uh, John here is telling us, confess, this is how we confess, this is what we confess. David, in Psalm 32, gives us a, a real clear picture. I'm just going to read it real quick, say a couple of things about it, and then I'm going to close. But I don't want you to miss some very practical things about confession, because actually it's a language that we don't, we don't speak very well. I find a lot of believers don't, don't practice confession. You spend too much time in the shadows of your life trying to hide these things from God when God said, come into the light. Come into the safest place you could ever be. David says it in Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the one. Happy. Whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. And then listen, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You might be here this morning knowing exactly what David's talking about. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. And then verse 5 you could add, And then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then there's like this breathing marker, Selah, which is kind of, ah, oh. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer a prayer to you at a time when it may be found, which is now. Surely, as the rush of the great waters, they will not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. He starts by saying, I was hiding from you, and now I find you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He's speaking of the protection and the covering and the relief that confession brings. One writer, he makes this interesting observation. If you cover yourself, I'll never be able to cover you, God says. If you are willing to uncover yourself, if you're willing to be naked to me, again, me, come into the light, be exposed, be honest with me. If you're willing to show me your sin and admit it and make no excuses and to say the same, that's what confession means, to say the same thing that God says about it, then I can truly cover you again. And if, but if you cover yourself, I have to expose you. If you expose yourself, I'll cover you. And see, he can offer us forgiveness because forgiveness is based on the cleansing of another. It doesn't mean that your sin is undone. It doesn't mean as though it never happened. It, it just goes away from you. It doesn't go on your record. It got transferred to Jesus. He became guilty for what you did, not just metaphorically, but, but in reality, your sin was transferred for Jesus, to Jesus. And the covering of righteousness over you is not a cover-up. Jesus takes all your sins and he's clothed with it. 
stripped naked. His garments are cast lots for him. He's stripped of everything and clothed in our sin. In turn, we get covered. We, his righteousness, his moral beauty, his perfection becomes our hiding place. David says, here's how you start. You be honest with yourself. No more self-deceiving. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine you. That's stepping into the light. Come to terms with the danger of sin in your life, the deficiencies of your strategy to cover up your guilt. Confess it. Confess it. Confession is this language to learn. Confess. Real confession is for sin, not just the sorrow for consequences. Corey Tim Boom in The Hiding Place, she said this, the blood of Jesus never cleansed an excuse. Ouch. Although we're fully justified as Christians, we must honestly acknowledge wrongdoing for what it is. It is sin against a holy God. We don't leave anything buried. We come into the light. We hide in God, not from God. God. We risk faith. I trust you. I'm going to trust you that you will forgive my sins, that you will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I'm not trusting in me. I'm not trusting my resolve. I'm not trusting my promises. I'm not trusting my vows. I'm not trusting anything I bring to the table. All I'm coming is I'm coming and being completely as dead level honest as I can. This is my sin. And I confess it. And I trust you'll forgive me. And we just do that over and over and over, believing he won't fail you. Now, interestingly enough, David ends this psalm where John began his discussion. John begins his discussion in John 1, 4 and says, Listen, I'm writing these things because I want your joy to be complete. I don't want you to live a life that's not blessed or happy or joyful. I don't want you to be a Christian who's been saved by the blood of Jesus and that you would live a miserable existence. I want you to know joy. David ends this psalm by saying, Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. David knows confession brings joy. See, maybe you didn't know that, that joy is the goal. Maybe your view of God is not a joyful God seeking the joy of those that he loves, but it is. It's not pain, it's not sorrow, it's not condemnation, it's joy. I think we have this idea that God awaits us angrily in confession, that he just scowls at us waiting. That's not the case, and if you want to know that, you want to know how God waits for us in confession, how he receives our confession, we look to Jesus. Go to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she was free. She ran into the town who she'd been hiding from. She ran in into the open space and said, I just met a man who told me everything about myself. 
free. You know what the town does? They run to try to find him. There's Jesus that tells the parable of the two that are praying on the mountain. And yet it sounds so specific, you wonder if he doesn't have somebody in mind when he talks about the Pharisee who stands in all his piety and all his uh, confidence, which is really darkness, and confesses nothing to God about how, except about how good he is. And then he turns and says, but here's a tax collector who goes, and he feels so ashamed, he's so distraught, he's so heavy and burdened with the with the conviction of his sin that he can't even lift his eyes up and he says, does God forgive a sinner like me? Jesus says, I'll tell you who walked away justified. I'll tell you who walked away in the light. Or there's Peter after he denied Jesus and thought, man, Jesus is going to have nothing to do with me again, ever. And he goes to the boat and he goes fishing and he's escaping and he's running from his guilt, and all of a sudden Jesus is at the shore, and he, and he cries out from the shore, cast your net over to the other side. Just like he told him when he first met him and called him. Something in Peter's way, it can't be. No way. You know what the text says? He jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore. Or Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You don't have an angry God waiting for you. You have a God waiting to cover you in his beauty at the sound of your confession, who's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Why do you love the darkness when the light is what you were created for? We see God's heart. We see His love for the humble and the broken and His embrace of those that come to Him. Hide in Him. and Be covered by Him. Will you bow with me? Father, I pray you do what only you can do. You would take the truth of your word. You would, you'd work it in our minds and our hearts in such a way you draw us to your son Jesus. We want to see him more clearly. Father, I pray your spirit by your grace would, would convict us of our sin. Father, so that we can step out of the darkness into your light with confession that we'd say the same thing you say about our sin, that we confess it to you. Father, we'd come and we'd hide in you and stop hiding from you. And because of all that you've done in sending your son, Jesus. Father, I pray we would know the joy that comes from confession. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.